Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a wiki podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. As owners of Charles Spurgeon's personal library, we here at Midwestern Seminary enjoy a unique stewardship for our students, uh, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the church at large. Midwestern Seminary annually hosts the Spurgeon Lectures, where we hope to provide biblical preaching to equip ministers and gospel preachers to strengthen them in their local church ministries. We recently had the privilege of having Dr. Derek Thomas on campus to deliver our ninth annual Spurgeon Lectures. In a time of increasing pastoral cynicism and pastoral burnout, it was particularly encouraging to hear Dr. Thomas speak of the glorious reality that it is to preach God's Word and to pastor God's people. Hope you enjoy this Q&A with Dr. Thomas. In the room today, we have a few guests here, a few faculty members, a number of MDiv students, and it looks like um, a couple other administrators here. So, so kind of a, a, a small representation of Midwestern Seminary as a whole, Dr. Thomas. So I guess, let me begin. You're delivering the Spurgeon Lectures here at Midwestern Seminary, and um, you chose to speak today, and I, I believe tomorrow as well, on kind of the practicalities of preaching, uh, lessons you've learned over the many decades of ministry. And so clearly you perceive, at least distantly here, and perhaps more broadly in other theological institution settings, a need to speak to those things. And so tell us why you chose to approach the lectures as you've chosen to approach them today and tomorrow. I chose to base uh, what I wanted to say on the sort of groundwork of a document that's important in the 17th century, the Directory for the Public Worship of God. The prime reason why the Westminster Assembly met was in order to provide some reformation in the issue of public worship, uh, with the backdrop, of course, of medieval Catholicism and the Reformation, and to some extent, the pronouncements of the Council of Trent at the close of the previous century. So this represents the sort of flowering of Puritanism at its, at its height in the 1640s, uh, and all of the Puritans uh, were preachers. It was their primary calling. So I didn't want to come and say, this is what I think. I wanted to tell you that what I think and what I've practiced has been influenced by what these men had to say about, uh, about preaching. And despite the fact that it's a document from the 1640s, it actually is as relevant today as a template for what preaching is and can be done. And especially in the area of application, which I want to talk about tomorrow, it is fairly timeless, I think. So you said this morning, uh, you referenced the importance of exegeting the crowd. And obviously, we, we would argue and argue that exegeting the text is first and foremost. But, but it does matter to be aware to whom you're speaking. And it sounds like you have learned that lesson over these many decades of ministry. So like, what has taken place in the course of your ministry for you today to emphasize the point to you need to be aware Beware of, be aware of to whom you're speaking. You know, there are general uh, principles to take into consideration. And, I, and I've been blessed by being in, I've been in three congregations in 43 years, all of whom have been pretty spiritually mature with a history of solid preaching in all three congregations going back, you know, 50 to 100 years. So I've, I've not done... Uh, the church plant thing I've not done. I'm going into a congregation that's Arminian, and I have reformed 
soteriological principles and how do I address? I've never actually had to encounter any of that. But within any congregation, as I'll be saying tomorrow, there are different sorts of people. Certain times, because it was mandatory to attend church, there were people who were hardened, not just unconverted, but hardened and, and opposed, but they would be in church. You have them, they're teenagers, they're the 14 year old sons, you know, who, whose body language is saying, I'm only here because my parents make me come. And what is it that you say to that person? What about the person who's near the kingdom of God, in whom God has been working, but they're not, they're not quite yet in the kingdom of God? What, what do they need to hear? What about young converts who zeal, but not according to knowledge? And you don't want to put the fire out. You just want to teach them a little more. But then you've got the opposite. You've got the middle-aged Christians who know a lot, but the fire has gone out. And how do you rekindle the fire? What do you say to the person who's in, they're in their 80s, late 80s, early 90s. All the major decisions in life have been made. All they're looking forward to now is heaven. Are they redundant? Is there, is there a word for them for this week to continue, to persevere, to, to find an opportunity, even, even at this late stage in life, to serve God? So you, you exegete any congregation, no matter uh, what it is. But my point today was to exegete a congregation according to where they were in their knowledge of Scripture, in their knowledge of theology, and without compromising, you know, make those necessary accommodations to get down to where they are. It, it's easy, and especially for me, as somebody who's taught systematic theology, it's easy for me to assume that everybody in the congregation is a seminary student. And to switch from how I would lecture in the classroom on a Thursday afternoon to how I'm going to preach on Sunday morning and to, to be able to make that switch is very important. So you've been around theological education for many decades, going back to your time as a student and uh, teaching at RTS and uh, now serving at First Presbyterian Columbia and teaching there in Charlotte. I'm curious, what are you seeing these days, uh, recent years, as relates to incoming students? And, and as you look at incoming students um, and your context, which isn't that dissimilar from our context, what do students these days seem to particularly need to be formed in, particularly need to be to be shaped in? You know, my experience, of course, is RTS students, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how different that makes the experience from Midwestern or, or seminaries like yours. I, I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference, to be honest. On the plus side, I'm impressed by their zeal and commitment. They're ready to give their lives for the gospel. They're, they're ready to spend the rest of their days in ministry. Many of them are Ivy League students, especially in Charlotte. They could have their dream job and make tons of money. And instead, they want to be in the ministry. And that, that really warms the heart of somebody my age, that the, the future of the church is in really good hands and God is answering prayer. I'm also impressed by the sheer number of them. You know, the, the seminaries, this one for sure, and the seminary that I teach in, I mean, they're not going backwards in numbers, they're going forwards. God is calling 
young or youngish men and women into ministry all the time. And classes that I teach are certainly bigger than the classes that I attended as a, as a seminary student. So all of that is, is very positive. You know, I teach at a reformed seminary. And although students come to the seminary, some students come to the seminary because of, of its reformed credentials, there are others there who come because it's in their backyard. And I had a student last Thursday put his hand up in the middle of the class. I'm, I'm teaching a, a, an introductory course on Reformed theology. And, I mean, he just put his hand up and said, you know, I'm not Reformed, but I'm, I'm just trying to learn. And I was impressed that the class didn't make him feel awkward. That there was a genuine desire, I think, on his part and on the class's part to sort of, let's see what the Bible has to say on X, Y, Z. On the other side, I mean, they are products of the woke culture that we're in and, and however much they may resist it. There are elements of it that, that manifests itself in a sense of entitlement, especially when it comes to grading. And they expect an A because they work hard. And, and that narrative is, is you know, it, it's not my generation's narrative. You get a good grade because you deserve it, not because you work hard. So... You know, I, I sense that a little, and they, they will certainly have to deal with that in the church, for sure, and be able to address that in church, that sense of, of entitlement. We have all seen in recent years, it seems like many pastors either fall in ministry or just kind of fizzle out in ministry. And sometimes the fall is a spectacular, scandalous sin that brings great reproach on the name of Christ. Other times it's just the pastor down the street who, who just kind of grew weary and well-doing and wakes up one day and decides I'd rather be selling insurance. Uh, you have mentioned you've been in ministry now, it sounds like 40 or so years, um, somewhere around the age of 70. What have you found over the years has kept you with your heart in ministry, your mind in ministry, your, your passions in ministry, that there's a freshness and a zeal still, though you've been at this for many decades? Yeah, oh boy, that's a great question. I have a dear friend, Jeff Thomas, who was in Alfred Place Baptist Church in Aberystwyth, retired maybe five or six years ago, maybe a little longer than that. When I was saved, at Aberystwyth University in 1971, Alfred Place Baptist Church became my church. I actually became a deacon in the church. There's a picture of me on the wall in the, in the basement downstairs to this day. Jeff was a recent graduate of uh, Westminster Seminary at the time. I think he had graduated when I first knew him, maybe seven years or so. And I can still... I can still hear him preach. I can every now and then, Rosemary, my, my wife will accuse me of making a gesture or saying something in a certain way, and she'll say, "Jeff was in the pulpit today." And I haven't heard Jeff preach on a regular basis in fifty years, but it made a huge impact on me. I remember him saying at a conference when he was a young man. You know, he wanted to succeed. He was very ambitious. He wanted to make it to the very top. He wanted to be a great preacher. And then he said, I reached a stage where I just wanted to finish the line and cross the line unscathed. Just even if I have to crawl over the line 
without a major moral blemish on my life. And I get that for sure. Like you, I've known, I've known dear friends of mine who have fallen morally. I've known friends of mine who have just given up and have experienced a weariness that has made them unable to continue. I have three or four ministers in my congregation who have just been spent. And one of them is now working in Walmart. It's very sad. It's a reality. A good wife. I can't imagine being in ministry if when you go home, you're facing opposition and darkness. And I, I know marriage is like that. You know, you fight a battle with the deacons and then you go home and you fight another one. And that, that is not my experience. I married an angel who's prepared to put up with me. And, and that's important. I mean, however difficult ministry is, and in recent years, I've experienced some really bad aspects of ministry. I mean, really bad aspects of ministry. And uh, to be able to go home and know the unconditional love and respect uh, of, your, of your wife. I'm in a polity that is different from yours. And I'm in a Southern Presbyterian church with a Southern Presbyterian view of the ruling elder. And if you ask who, who is in charge of First Presbyterian Church, well, the first answer is Jesus is. But the second answer is the ruling elders are in charge. And I'm only a cog in that machine. But I understand that for a lot of Baptist ministers, you know, the buck stops at their door or on their desk. And that's an immense pressure. Every now and then something will land on my desk. But all I have to do is call my elders you know, and they're going to take it up, which is a, a huge blessing for sure. I experienced just three or four years ago uh, an accusation about plagiarism that four committees looked into, and I was uh, exonerated of intentional plagiarism, but it almost undid me. That was probably the lowest point in ministry. And to be surrounded, I, I learned who my friends were, for sure. I learned the value of a unanimous session of 48 elders who stood by me. And that was part of the most difficult thing for me. You mentioned you've enjoyed preaching through the Gospels over the years. And I'm curious, have you preached through all four Gospels? Yes. Say a word about the, the preaching series of each of those four Gospels and kind of roughly where you were in your ministry when you preached through them and duration of the series and particular emphases or particular sweetnesses you experienced in each of those four different Gospels. So Mark was the first one I did, and it's probably the easiest one. There's a lot of momentum in Mark. It keeps going, and the Caiuthus, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. And it tells a narrative uh, that's probably Peter's narrative, and it's full of stories. So that was probably the, the easiest one. And I did, I did that in the first 10 years of my ministry, I'm sure. John is probably the most difficult in that it, it's heavily theological and is in a completely different style. And I think I needed some maturity in order to handle some of John and the fact that half of it covers seven days, you know, so you, you don't have the sweep of history like you have in Luke, which is very detailed. And Matthew, 
Matthew, you need you need to have an understanding of the sort of Jewishness of Matthew's gospel to preach it well. So you, you need to be able to handle large sort of tracts of the Old Testament in order to understand what Matthew is actually trying to say. Again, that wasn't a, a gospel for me to take on in my first few years of ministry. I tell students, you know, not to preach on First John in the first 10 years of their ministry because they're going to come across as legalists. It's very hard to preach on First John and still sound gospel-centered. If the evidence of my relationship with Jesus are these fruits of the Spirit, how, how much of these fruits of the Spirit do I need to evidence in order to have a genuine, and, and that's a direction into, into legalism. Um, I think you really, really have to have a handle on how to preach the gospel in every sermon in order not to end up in the wrong place with John. What is your hope as you look at a new generation of seminary students that you're interacting with at RTS and in places like this? And what is your hope for them? What do you hope they get to experience in ministry? Uh, what do you hope that they get to contribute to in the local church? You know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. And I, I, I went off social media. It, it was a very nasty place. But I mean, 2020 has certainly brought about elements of where certain elements of our society want us to go. And it, it seems very obvious that one of the targets is conservative Christianity or, or even any kind of Christianity. So I fear for the next generation. I, I think they're going to be tested in ways that I wasn't. When I talk to college students, I hear them talk about stuff. And I didn't think about any of that stuff when I was at college. Having to defend the very notion of truth or having to defend that there is such a thing as history, events that actually happened and that can be verified. And all of that is up for grabs now. So, so you can't assume that what you're saying is what they're hearing. There's no way that the church is free from all of that. I have to assume in a congregation of 3,000 people, there are probably a couple of hundred in this room who have conceded to aspects of postmodernity in some form or another. I mean, the whole issue of sexuality and gender, it wasn't even on the radar when I was growing up or, or even in the first 20 years of my ministry, but it most certainly is right now. So the future church, the church at least as I can see it, facing a form of secular authoritarianism that's very scary, but not dissimilar to what the second century church experienced in Rome before Constantine. And I think that we can learn, and I think that younger generations must learn how the church survived the second century in order to be able to survive this century into which we're passing. Last question. Give us a sense as to kind of your week as a minister and particularly within that, how you prepare sermons. Well, it's very different now from what it was 40 years ago. I spent all morning, three mornings a week studying languages. I was never the guy that came up with my own translation. I just, 
I trusted my English text, but I, I did want to know where were the, the difficulties? Where was there a, a difference of opinion? Can this be taken in more than one way? I, I need to know that. And I, I certainly think that students need the ability to understand Greek and Hebrew commentaries as to where they're going. I'm absolutely in favor of teaching Greek and Hebrew. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But these days, as a, as a senior minister, with meetings, and as you well know, I'm in a lot of meetings and wearing two hats. I'm typically preparing my sermon on a Saturday morning at home in my office at home. I don't consult as many commentaries as I used to. In my early days, I would have consulted 25, 30 commentaries. I've reached the point where I think, they're all saying the same thing. Um, and one that's perhaps a little outside the box, just to force me into thinking in a different way. You know, at my stage in life, I, I know the Bible a whole lot better than I did 40 years ago. I doubt there's a text that I've not preached on before. I don't repeat sermons. When I came to Columbia, I decided I would prepare fresh sermons every week. I, I actually like the process of preparing sermons, but at least 50% of the sermon isn't prepared behind a desk. It's in my head. Uh, I don't use a lot of notes. I just have notes on two sides of one piece of paper that I camouflage as much as possible. I actually don't like the visual of somebody who's turning over, like, this is the 28th page right. they're turning. I actually don't like that visual. I don't like their manuscript is so big, there's no room for their Bible. And that visual is deadly. Yes. It's absolutely deadly. Application is something that I think about on my feet when I'm walking around. If, if I have an outline, the thing that I work on the most is the conclusion. Where do I want this thing to land? And I want it to land in a good place or, or maybe a bad place, you know, depending on the text. We'll leave it there. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's a conclusion. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Thomas for today? Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.